Our passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. You'll find it on page 1017 of your pew Bibles. That's 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we do stand amazed in your presence, and we ask you now to help us to understand your word. Would you make it clear? Give us open hearts and ears to receive it. Would you help us to stand firm with our Savior Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen. Discretion is the better part of valor. It's a statement that is true. Any military man knows discretion is the better part of valor. It means that there are times where the best course of action, indeed the only course of action, is to retreat, to run. If you find yourself for some odd reason in the midst of the running of the bulls in Spain, uh, please don't make this an opportunity to make a principled stand and to hold your ground. Uh, By all means, run with everyone else. Um, If you want your body to be intact, you need to turn and flee. Um, Running, discretion is the better part of valor. There are times where running, even for the greatest general, is going to be the right course of action. But let's realize also that sometimes running, far from keeping you safe, will actually lead you in to danger. Uh, I met a guy who was a park ranger in Kruger National Park. So it was his job to lead tours through the wilderness. Sometimes he'd go off on his own to do various jobs. And uh, he would be out there by himself with a rifle that he was supposed to keep unloaded. So I had the obvious question, I think. I asked him, did you ever have any close calls? Uh, I mean, you're out there with dangerous animals and things, and you don't have an unloaded rifle. Did you ever have a dangerous situation? He got really serious, and he said, yeah. And he told me this story. He said that he went walking uh, this one time out by himself, and he was walking near a river on this gravel trail. And he happened to come around a bend, And when he hopped around this bend, he saw something that you really don't want to see. Just a short distance in front of him is a mother lion and her cubs. Now, being a park ranger, he knew that this meant that the mother lion would be at her most dangerous. 
She was frightened by the fact that he came out of nowhere. She was defensive of her cubs. And there was such a short distance between the two of them that he didn't think he could convince her that he didn't mean any harm. So he said immediately he knew he had three options. The first option was to do what would come naturally, to drop your gun, turn, and run. And he said that if he had done that thing, that uh, he knew that at this range that lion would chase him down in seconds and that he would have no chance of escaping. He said the second option was to try and get his gun loaded and get a shot off. To me, this seems like the wise course of action. Uh, But he said that he wasn't even sure with the short distance and the amount of time it took to load and aim and get off a shot. He wasn't even sure he could get it done in time. So he said he had to go with option number three. He had to stand firm, hold his ground, and hope and pray this lion thought this was a fight it did not want to pick. So just as he envisioned what happened, the lion became frightened, sprang up from its crouch, started coming towards him at a rapid pace, and he admitted his fear in this moment, but he didn't move a muscle. He just stood there, and he said the lion came skidding to a stop just a couple feet in front of him, the gravel from the road literally kicking up and landing on his feet. There are some times where running won't keep you safe where running will actually lead you into danger. Now, let's be clear. There are times in Scripture that we as believers are told to run. Uh, We're told to flee from the passions of our youth, to, to flee from sexual immorality, to flee from idolatry. But just as significant are the times we are told, stay right where you are and don't give an inch. Stand firm. We've been studying this book of 1 Peter, and we've said that Peter has been writing to the dispersed people of God in the midst of a culture that doesn't understand them and is beginning to show signs of hostility towards them. That God's people are beginning, and maybe not at the state-sponsored level, but they're beginning to experience types of suffering, persecution. And that in the midst of this, there is a temptation to lose sight of what they have in Christ— this living hope that they've been called to, and there's a temptation to instead abandon Christ. As we've been studying this book, we've seen this theme of suffering and suffering well come to the surface. And so it's no surprise as we come to the end of this letter, amidst the greetings and final thoughts he has, Peter has one last exhortation, one last instruction for us. He says right there in verse 12, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So that's the question before us. How do we stand firm? How do we remain with Christ in the midst of suffering and discouragement and despair and even a powerful enemy? How do we have the type of faith that Martin Luther had when he said the words, uh, Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me before the religious leaders of his day. Well, as we explore this passage in three parts, we're going to see that we can, in fact, stand firm and that there's all the strength we need to be found in the grace of God. We're going to begin by looking at verses 6 through 8, and that's our first point. It's stand firm through humility. I remember last week, Pastor Ben uh, preached all the way through verse 5. And the, the ending part there was about how the believers are to clothe themselves with humility towards one another. 
And we were given a reason for it at the end of 5. It said that, uh, Reclothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the very fact that God sets himself up in opposition to those who would be proud is supposed to motivate us towards humility towards one another. Well, connected to that thought is what we have in verse 6. We are told to humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, let's recognize being told to be humble is a difficult instruction to receive. Uh, It's difficult to think of others more highly than yourself, to think of others' opinions as better than yours, to think of others' preferences as more important than yours. It's difficult to think of yourself as lowly and others as highly, even in the kingdom of God. But the type of humility that Peter has in mind here, I think, is actually even harder. It's not the type of humility that comes from a general disposition towards each other. It's the humility directed from us toward God that sees even suffering as something from his good hand. It's the humility that Job displayed after he lost his, uh, all his worldly possessions and his health and his family. And he said, though he slay me, still I tr- will trust him. How do we have that sort of humility? The humility that accepts even the hardest of things in life as something that a good God gives to his children. Let's be honest, it's easy to get discouraged when suffering comes. Uh, One of the patterns you notice of people that used to claim to be Christians and have since abandoned their faith is very often there was an emotional reaction to suffering. How do we prevent the discouragement that comes through pain and loss and all the other trials of life? How do we prevent that from making us abandon Christ? Well, Peter knows this is hard. And so does God, and so they give us two ways we can do this. First is remember that help is coming. We see that in the second half of verse 6. He says, uh, so humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Peter is once again hammering home this theme throughout the book, that we are members of the backwards kingdom. That if you are going to stay with Christ, you have to remember what sort of king he was. If you want to experience glory, then in this life you have to experience shame. If you want to experience eternal life, then in this life you have to daily die to self. If you want to experience comfort and ease, then in this life you must go through suffering as you follow the suffering king. Peter points forward to the day that Jesus will come back and he says, if you're having trouble humbling yourself for the suffering that God has ordained for you to go through, remember, this is what this kingdom is like and that king is coming back. Now let's recognize, in the middle of the discouragement that comes through suffering, that's a hard word. Uh, Yes, it's true. Yes, we believe it. At times, though, it just seems harsh. Sometimes you're in pain and you don't need a word that there's relief tomorrow. You need relief today. Uh, we, we get this, uh, this uh, concept of immediacy. Uh, if you get hurt, uh, you go to an urgent care clinic. You, you don't wait for your doctor to have an appointment two weeks from now. Uh, you go to the ER. Uh, if you have a plumbing incident in the middle of the night, you call the 24-hour plumber. God knows this. God knows that we need help, not just tomorrow, but we need help now. 
And that's why he gives us the second reason we can humble ourselves. It's that he offers help today. In verse 7, he tells us that we are to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. The, the image there is of someone wearing a heavy pack, walking along and growing weary. The straps of the pack cutting into their shoulders. And finally they come to a point where they toss the pack off their back and instantly relief rushes through their body. In that image, the pack is our anxieties. All of the emotional, psychological, spiritual pain that comes along with the suffering God ordains with us. God gives us these hard times, but he promises that he is there to aid us. That when we don't have the strength to humble ourselves before his suffering, that we'll find him ready to give us aid. But how does that actually happen? Well, I think sometimes the simplest applications are the ones that ring most true. And in this case, I think the way this normally happens is through regular prayer time. The very thing that seems most natural to believers, to be driven to our knees when things get hard, is the right reaction. And when we go to our knees knowing that God is good, and that we, even though we may not understand what his purposes are fully, that we can trust him then we'll find him ready to aid us even on the hardest of days. It's what I think was going on in Philippians chapter 4 when we're told that our prayers and supplications and our thanksgivings will result in the peace of God that transcends understanding, filling our hearts in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we have lots of things in life that will discourage us. Whether it's outright persecution or the day-to-day pains that come in living in a broken world. We need to know how we will keep ourselves from growing discouraged. How we can stand firm with Christ. Remember, God is there to aid you. He is for you. He cares. We can stand firm with Christ, confident that we are standing with the right God. But discouragement is not the only potential thing that could lead a believer to abandon Christ or to be tempted to do so. Another thing that could do that is intimidation. In verses 8 and 9, we see our second way we're going to stand firm. It's by standing firm by being ready to fight. Peter gives us two very strong commands in verse 8. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. It's like he's trying to wake up some sleeping Christians to tell them, be on alert. Something dangerous is about to happen. What is this dangerous thing that they're to be on alert for? Well, it's a very powerful enemy that has them in his sights. I uh, really enjoy the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, his uh, Lord of the Rings books, and uh, I really like the movies too. And uh, there's a scene in the first of the Lord of the Rings movies where the hobbits have been uh, running away from the ringwraiths. And uh, Gandalf was with them for a while, but he had to leave. So they're, they're waiting for him in this inn. And they're, they're in kind of the tavern part of the inn. And Frodo accidentally puts on the ring of power. And unsurprisingly, it attracts a lot of attention. And uh, unbeknownst to them, 
Strider or Aragorn is sitting in the corner. He hasn't introduced himself to them yet. And he sees all this happening and he knows they're supposed to be lying low. So he runs up and he grabs the hobbits and he yanks them and gruffly throws them into a side room. And the hobbits have no idea who he is at this point, and they just see this gruff guy physically throwing them into a room. And so they're understandably afraid. And Aragorn looks at them and he says, Are you frightened? And they look at him and they say, Yes. And he says, Well, not nearly frightened enough. I know what hunts you. He's referring to the ring race, these powerful beings that are coming after the, the hobbits to steal the ring of power and destroy them. I think very often we as Christians go through life in a sort of spiritual stupor, in a, in a haze. Uh, we have no sense of urgency to our walk with Christ because, in part, we don't take seriously the threat of our adversary, the devil. Now, let's acknowledge that we live in a day and age when many people doubt the existence of the devil. We don't talk about him all that much. But if we're going to take Scripture seriously, if we're going to take the words of our Lord Jesus seriously, then we have to admit that there is a powerful being that stands opposed to God and his people that seeks to work us woe. According to Peter, we are in peril when we don't stand ready and on guard to know that the devil is nearby and looking to destroy us. Now, there's a lot that we could say that the Bible says about the devil if we spent the time to study all of it. But I think it's instructive for us to spend a little time looking at the three aspects of of him that Peter focuses on here. First thing we need to look at is his stance. The devil is described here as your adversary. Now, realize that the devil has set himself up in opposition to God and all that God loves. And by extension, that will include us, his people. He is the accuser. He's the one who hurls accusations against God's people and will do everything he can to destroy us in every arena he has given audience. The second thing we can see is his method. He's described like a roaring lion. I don't know if you've ever heard a lion roar. Uh, It's certainly not the purr of a kitty cat. It's deep. It's guttural. It travels for miles. And it's designed to strike fear into other animals and even people. Well, here that image is used by Peter to describe the intimidating tactics the devil uses as he seeks to destroy us. He wants to fill our hearts with despair, and he'll use any opening that he can get. He might use intellectual arguments that seem oh so airtight. He might use our own emotions, make it seem as if they will never let up, that it will never be a day where we'll feel good about ourselves again. He may even use the prospect of pain, the anticipation of something causing us pain that's keeping us paralyzed and in in action. In all this, though, we see the third thing, which is his goal. He wants to devour us. Jesus says that the, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't give life. He takes it. And here he is looking to devour the faith of believers so that they will wander away from Christ, out into the open, out of the flock of God, so that he can pour his wrath on them. 
We do indeed have an ancient foe, and he does indeed want to work us well. So how do we stand against this sort of an enemy? Well, Peter gives us two ways. He says, first, fight back. He tells us that we are, in verse 9, to resist him. This is no time for passivity. It's no time for assuming everything's going to be okay, it's going to blow over. This is the time for firm faith that's strong in Jesus to fight back. Now, I can't help but see this and think that Peter must have been thinking back to his own failure at this point. The very things he's telling us to do at the beginning of this section, to be on alert, to be sober-minded, are the things he failed to do on the night, on the eve of the greatest battle in history, when he stood with Jesus in the garden and was instructed to pray. Instead, Peter fell into temptation. He didn't stay on guard. And as Scripture tells us, for a time, he abandoned Christ. Peter knows the danger that Christians are in when they assume that they are in safety and don't stand urgently in watch of the enemy that hunts them. Now, it's instructive to see the way he tells us to fight back, though. Um, The great reformer Martin Luther uh, famously threw his inkwell at the devil. I guess that's one way of resisting him. But I think the type of resistance here is tipped off when he tells us we're to resist him firm in our faith. The type of resistance here is to stay strong in Jesus, to prioritize our time with Jesus, to make our vibrant walk with Christ the center of our lives. Maybe it means waking up early, even when we're tired. But if there's an urgency to our lives, we're going to realize this is important. We need to be ready to fight back when the schemes of the devil come our way. The second way he tells us to fight back is by seeing the bigger picture. Um, I've been told by people who know a lot more about military matters than I do that there's something called the fog of war that soldiers go through. It's where a soldier in a particular corner of a skirmish uh, isn't able to see the big picture of the battle. Uh, He loses sight of his allies and he loses sight of his enemies and all he sees are the shells landing around him and the enemies in front of him. And so he doesn't know if the battle's going well. He doesn't know if the battle's going poorly and it can lead to soldiers entering into despair or even making foolish actions. It's the fog of war. As Christians, sometimes we experience something like the fog of war that the devil loves to use against us. Our own subjective experience of things becomes the test of what is happening in the kingdom of God. When we're low and we're suffering, then it must mean that God's kingdom is crumbling. To that, Peter says, back up and see the big picture of what's going on. Cut through the fog and realize you're not alone in this fight. Your brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing the same despair, the same distress, the same foe. And through it all, they are standing firm in Christ. So, so can you. We live in a day and age where the church is more connected than it's ever been. We have resources at our fingertips that tell us about the victories and uh, struggles of our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. I think this here is a motivation for us to read our missionary support letters, to uh, go to the Voice of the Martyrs website, And see it not just as gathering some information, but actually part of our standing firm in Christ. 
as we're encouraged and even as we cry with our brothers and sisters around the world, we gain a perspective of what God's doing. And the devil won't be able to trick us by telling us that when we struggle, that God's kingdom is also struggling. Discouragement, intimidation. I don't know about you, but I see the call that we have here from Peter, and it seems difficult. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning, and strength is the furthest thing from your mind. Uh, you, You don't feel strong enough to stand against a foe like the devil. Uh, You don't think that you're strong enough to humble yourself under God's mighty hand in the midst of suffering. And and you're not thinking about standing firm so much as you are just getting out of bed in the morning. Is there any balm for those of us who come here this morning with open wounds? Is there any encouragement for those of us who come with limbs so weak we don't know if we can even go another step? Well, I think that God has been especially kind in how he inspired this text, which leads us to our third and final point, that we are to stand firm by remembering the grace of God. The very grace that we are supposed to stand firm in is the very grace that will sustain us through the hardest days of life. Now, as we come to the end of this great letter, it's as if, Peter, if this were a symphony, is reaching the crescendo in these final two verses. He wants to remind believers that, yes, life is going to be hard as they follow Jesus, but the grace that they are to stand in is sufficient to see them through to the end. He begins with, yet again, telling us of the difficulty. He says, and after you have suffered a little while. That's not a little while as in a couple more days. It's a little while in comparison to the thing that he says next. It's a little while in comparison to the joyful eternity we will share with Christ. He says the God who has called us to the eternal glory in Christ. Peter says we are on the precipice of eternity. That there is a dam full of the grace of God that is a up to the fullness of it. It's about to break forth and wash all that are in Christ into a joy that never ends. And in light of that, yes, our sufferings are but a little while. But not only are they just a little while in comparison to the joy to come, that God himself is about to set all things right. Peter uses four verbs, four glorious verbs to describe how God will fix everything. He says that the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Everything that's been broken will be mended. Everything that's lost will be found. Everything that's unsure will be made sure. Everything that's weak will find strength that will not, never leave. Everything that seems as if it will pass away will be made permanent in Christ. Brothers and sisters, not only will God do all of this, he will do it personally himself. It is sure because the grace we stand firm in is the grace of the God that tells us to stand firm in it, and he surely will accomplish what he set out to do. Yes, it's true, we face an enemy with bared teeth 
and a roar coming from his throat. Yes, our limbs are weak. We are beaten and tired. Yes, on our own, our strength is not sufficient. But the grace of God that we stand firm in will sustain us all the way to the end. I caught a glimpse of how this sort of grace can sustain you, even through the hardest of times, when I saw a dear elderly saint who had walked with the Lord for many, many years. I got to see her right at the end of her journey with Christ until she stepped into eternity. She had uh, come, she developed a medical condition that made her lose control over the muscles in her body. Uh, a horrible disease, one that little by little took her ability to move, her ability to do pretty much anything, including her ability to talk. Even her voice eventually became almost indecipherable. One day in particular, she was suffering intensely, and the nurses who were with her were unable to understand what she was saying. And one of her family members was still able to understand her a little better than others and put her ear right next to her mouth. She smiled and she came, looked up and she said, she's singing about the goodness of God. Brothers and sisters, life is hard in this world. We follow a crucified king, one who walked the path from suffering to glory. On our own strength, we are not up for the task. But with the grace of God that we have in Jesus, we can stand firm to the end. This week, would you spend some time just thinking about the good news of the gospel and how it affects your life? Would you tell yourself of the truth of Jesus coming to this broken world and entering into it, humbling himself to suffer as he walked that road to the cross? Would you preach to yourself about how he did not grow discouraged, how he stayed on alert and resisted the devil, even through the hard days? Would you remind yourself how he defeated the devil by shedding his blood on the cross and paying for our sins? And then would you proclaim to yourself, how God restored him, how he raised him from the dead and brought him to his right hand, and now how he reigns forever, even in the midst of our dark days. Would you sing to yourself of the security you have in your Savior, how he will surely win the battle that he calls us to stand firm with him in, and how his grace will sustain us? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we do stand amazed in your presence. That you, who have all the glories of heaven, would invite us to join you in contrast to all the brokenness of this world. Lord, we long for that day. Would you strengthen us today so we can stand firm with you until that glorious day comes. We pray in your name. Amen.